following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. First world problem. You guys ever, anyone familiar with this term? Heard this term, first world problem? It was uh, popularized on the internet as a meme back in 2005. And it went viral on social media sites like Twitter and under the hashtag First World Problems. And it eventually found its place in the Oxford Online Dictionary, which defines the term as a relatively trivial or minor problem or frustration, implying a contrast with serious problems such as those that may be experienced in the developing or third world. Right? So when someone complains about something that is really not that big of a deal, it's really the sacred duty of everyone else to remind them that this is just a first world problem, right? And let me share a few examples of this with you. Um, I pulled off the internet. Someone chimed in with this comment on Twitter. I really hate having to fly commercial with ski boots and golf clubs. Your heart really breaks for this person, right? If you hear someone say this, you just, first world problem, just tell them, first world problem. I dislike the fact that a trip to my family's second home involves a six-hour airplane ride to a different continent. A simple cottage getaway would be so nice. That's a first world problem. Lastly, I just had my praline spread confiscated by TSA at Dulles Airport. As far as I'm concerned, the terrorists have now won. That's a first world problem. And I think we see this a lot, especially in a world where there's just this ever-growing sense of entitlement. And the whole point of this term, first world problem, is to to bring some levity, right? To bring some self-awareness to someone who's lacking it, someone who's complaining about a ridiculously small problem, especially when compared to the much greater problems that others face around the world, right? Especially in the third world. And it should be a sobering reminder when we inform someone, first world problem, of their lack of sensitivity and their compassion that they have for others because they're so focused on themselves. And I think we're all guilty of this on some level, especially in America. You know, we, we can become so consumed with ourselves, our needs, our comforts, our desires, that we become oblivious to the greater needs of those around us. And sometimes it's it's not even about us not even knowing. We know. It's just that we just don't care. And as we enter now into the final chapter of Jonah, I think we see God patiently trying to awaken Jonah to his first world problem. And it's something that Jonah has refused to see because he is so consumed with himself and his own problems. And I think there's an important lesson in this story for all of us. And I want to invite you to read the text together with me in in Jonah chapter 4. If you're new to our church, last week we covered Jonah chapter 3. And uh, it might be a little confusing if we jump right into 4 here. And so I just want to explain. uh, Jonah chapter 3, Jonah has gone to Nineveh. He's preached this message of repentance. And there's an amazing response. All the city, including the king, repents. 
And this is what we find in Jonah chapter 4. It says this. But it, depl- it displeased Jonah exceedingly that they responded in this way in repentance. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also so much cattle? Amen. You know, had God ended the book of Jonah with chapter 3, I think it would have made for a very Disney-like happy ending, right? The runaway prophet redeems himself. All of Nineveh is saved. God is glorified. The end. But I have to say, you know, I'm thankful that God did not end the story there with chapter 3. Because I don't think it would have truly honored the messiness of life and the reality of our struggle with understanding a God who is so different from us and whose heart is so much bigger than ours. And I think Jonah chapter 4 honors that struggle. You know, Jonah expresses the raw emotions and the questions that we often hesitate to express out loud to God. And I think, you know, just like, you know, in the Psalms we find these laments that express some of the grief and sorrow that we can't put into words. I think Jonah and even Job expresses some of the raw emotions of anger that we struggle to express with God. So here we are. Jonah has just delivered the most successful prophetic message probably in the history of mankind. 120,000 Assyrians and the king himself are all crying out in repentance. Even the animals are fasting and they're dressed in sackcloth, all because of Jonah's five-word prophetic message. And what is Jonah's response? 
Thank you, Lord, for using me so mightily to be your prophetic messenger. No, it's nothing like that. His response is, I knew it. I knew it. And he sounds like a petulant little child, right, who doesn't get his way. He says, I, I knew you were going to do this, God. This is exactly why I didn't want to come here. Because I knew this was just like you. I knew you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I knew it. Jonah grew up understanding God to be all of these things. This was the character. These were the attributes of God that every good Hebrew knew. And this very description is all throughout the Old Testament. It's spoken by Moses and by David and many prophets of old. This was the very nature of God. He was gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. But Jonah now takes these amazing attributes of God and he throws it back in God's face as if these are character flaws. How self-righteous do you have to be to see God's grace and his mercy as a, as a bad thing? The only person who could possibly feel this way is someone who, does not, who feels that they don't need that. They don't need God's grace. They don't need God's mercy. Only then could it be a bad thing. And yet, here we have Jonah. He cannot see his own sin. He cannot see his own need for God's grace and mercy. He can only see the sin of others, and that is why this is all such an offense to him. I knew it. I knew you were going to do this. And listen, this is a very dangerous place to be. To be that out of touch with the nature of your own heart that when you see God's heart on full display, it actually makes you angry. And yet here's the, the irony in all this. All of, all of these qualities that Jonah so wishes that God would not show to the Ninevites, God is pouring out in abundance to Jonah. And he, he doesn't even realize it. Jonah is the recipient of an incredibly patient grace. From the moment that Jonah runs from God, God pursues him. From the moment Jonah falls into the sea, God appoints a great fish to save him. From the moment that Jonah rebukes God in his anger, God patiently listens and he dialogues with him. What an amazing God. God is everything that Jonah is not. God is gracious. Jonah is vindictive. God is merciful. Jonah is vengeful. God is slow to anger and Jonah is hot-tempered. God is abounding in steadfast love. And here is Jonah overflowing with stubborn hatred. And this hatred runs so deep into the soul of Jonah that he would rather die than see these people live. Oh Lord, please take my life from me. Just take it. It's better for me to die than to live. I don't want to see this even happen. Oh, Jonah, prophet of God. Of all the prayers he could have prayed in that moment, immediately after the greatest revival, 
This is the prayer that he prays. You know, if I were God, I would have been more than happy to honor that prayer request. <laughs> so you want to die? I just, bing! <laughs> there you go. And actually, if I were God, the story wouldn't have even made it past chapter one. You know, you disobey me, you die. <laughs> Thank God I'm not almighty God, right? <laughs> God's slowness to anger towards the Ninevites is eclipsed by his slowness to anger towards Jonah. Instead of wiping Jonah off the face of the earth or even rebuking Jonah in that moment, God just does what God so often does. He just patiently asks him, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry, Jonah? Meaning, is your anger serving you any real purpose? Jonah, is it doing you any good? You know, I've heard it said that refusing to forgive someone is like you drinking poison while hoping that the other person dies. You know, our inability to forgive someone who has hurt us really only harms ourselves. And this comes out so clearly in the life of Jonah. His inability to forgive a people who have wronged him was literally destroying himself, taking him to these dark and angry places that left him bitter at the world and bitter at God. So much so that Jonah wants nothing to do with this God. So much so that he refuses to even respond to God. Jonah's got a lot of cuts. But God is so awesome. He does not let Jonah end the conversation or the relationship. He continues the dialogue because he wants Jonah to understand his heart. And I think sometimes we go to those places, don't we? We're so angry. We're so frustrated with God that he's not accomplishing our will that we're just done. We're done talking to him. We stop praying. We don't want anything to do with God anymore. But we've chosen to just stop talking to God when he allows things that we cannot understand. We just can't make sense of it. But just like God pursued Jonah on his way to Tarshish, God continues to pursue Jonah even now. And he pursues us, even when we ask those same questions. Maybe not out loud, but in our heart. And perhaps that is the best indicator, that we are angry with God. That we don't understand his ways. That we're bitter, upset, or even hurt. And it's reflected in the ways that we refuse to talk to God any longer. We stop praying to him. And we don't want to even hear from him. You know, at this point, Jonah's only motivation for living is bitter hatred. His only hope in God is that he may somehow change his mind and still destroy Nineveh. That's what he's holding on to. So he walks outside, outside the city, we're told, probably because he's just unable to, to just stand being in the sight of these, these people, these Ninevites. And so he goes outside the city, he builds a makeshift shelter for himself, and he just waits. He waits. And what we see is Jonah, he has no problems with God's love and mercy when 
when that love and mercy is directed towards him and his people. But to a people who do not deserve it, to Jonah, that's impossible. That's unfathomable. God no longer fit within the parameters of Jonah's tidy little mortal universe. God was disrupting that, and his whole whole world was being flipped upside down. You know, I'm convinced that God will often do that to us as well. He will bring people into our lives. He will bring situations into our lives. It will be disruptive. It will be uncomfortable. And it will expose the limits of our love. And it is God, in his own patient, delicate way, trying to expand those limits, trying to expand our understanding of his great love for us and for his people. And we can't make sense of it because we're so consumed with ourselves, we're so filled with selfish conceit that we can only understand God's love within the context of ourselves. And so Jonah is sitting here under the hot sun outside of the city gates and he's shaking his head. I could just picture it. His arms are folded. His head's steaming. And he's refusing to talk to God any longer. And what God does next is so interesting. He, you know, apparently the shelter, this booth that Jonah builds is not sufficient enough to block the sun. And so God graciously grows a plant over this, this booth to provide a shade for Jonah, to relieve him of some of his discomfort. And, and what are we told? We're told that Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. He was exceedingly glad. Jonah seems almost schizophrenic, right? <laughs> like, imagine that. God shows mercy to 120,000 people. In verse 1, tells us that Jonah is exceedingly angry. And God provides a little shade from a plant, and Jonah suddenly, he's like, exceedingly glad. And I think this tells you all you need to know about Jonah, where his priorities are, where his concerns lie. It begins and it ends with himself. But God doesn't just love the Ninevites. He loves Jonah, too. And he loves Jonah too much to let him continue in his selfish ignorance. And so he appoints a worm to destroy this plant overnight. And the sweltering sun and the hot east wind overwhelms Jonah. And he's back to his angry place again. The plant is gone. And now so is his will to live. Jordan doesn't want to talk to God. But God, in his mercy, has a way of keeping the conversation going. Even if it's in our anger. And so again, he asks the question, but he asks in a slightly different way now. He says, do you do well to be angry for this plant, Jonah? And Jonah is exceedingly angry that God spares the Ninevites. He's exceedingly glad when God provides him with just a little bit of personal comfort. And he's exceedingly angry again when God takes it away. Right? God was using this plant, this little plant, as an object lesson for Jonah to expose just how silly and how misplaced Jonah's concerns are. You see, Jonah does have the capacity to care for something that perishes. But it's not the people of that great city. It's that wee little plant. He does have the ability. 
And when this perishes, it makes him angry, angry enough to die, he says. And this is the first time that Jonah in the whole book shows pity for anything. He doesn't care about the sailors. He certainly doesn't care about the Ninevites. He doesn't even care about himself. Just kill me now, Lord. He shows pity for this pathetic little plant. And it would be funny if it wasn't so sad, right? And this is what God says to Jonah in response. He said, Jonah, I created that plant. That little plant that lived for just one day, I created that plant. And I made it grow. And look at the great concern, that great concern you show for that little plant. Now, Jonah, I created those people that you hate, those Ninevites. They are people who are just utterly lost in their sin. But I created them, and I love them. Why would I not show them mercy? And this is how the book ends, the book of Jonah. You know, all that we're left with is that Jonah cares far more for a little plant that gives him a little comfort than the souls of thousands of people. And it's a bit of a cliffhanger, isn't it? Like, when we look at this, it's just a little bit confounding. Like, I don't get it. But when we look at the, the whole counsel of God, when we look at the entire Bible, we see that the question that God presents to Jonah is, is actually not left hanging at all, even though Jonah never responds. One of the most pervasive and powerful themes, one of the greatest questions of this short book is this repeated question, this repeated concern, and it is about those who are on the verge of perishing. And we see it all throughout this book. In chapter 1, the captain of the ship implores Jonah to cry out to his God as a last-ditch effort to save all of these men, these sailors that are from perishing. And what does he say? He says, arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not, what, perish. This captain is asking Jonah to do something, just do anything. Doesn't he care? Doesn't Jonah care that we're perishing? In chapter 2, we find a pensive Jonah reflecting upon his salvation while in the belly of this great fish and in his sinking to the bottom of the sea floor, he prays for the first time, crying out to God for salvation, and God saves him. God saves him from perishing in the most unexpected way. And in chapter 3, we see Jonah fulfill his duty in preaching a message of impending judgment to the Ninevites, these wicked people, and we see their miraculous response. And it's their king who calls them to appeal to a God that he does not even know, and he's saying, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not, what? Perish. And now in chapter 4, we see Jonah's response to this amazing turn of events. But he's furious at God for showing mercy to his enemies. And God shows him through a little plant how Jonah cares more for the perishing of this little plant than the perishing of 120,000. 
He says, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. God is showing the world through Jonah and the Ninevites that he, he does care for those who are perishing. No matter how wicked, no matter how depraved they are, they are his creation and they are loved. And when we come to the Gospels in the New Testament, we find a story that is almost identical to the story of Jonah in chapter 1. And I think any Jewish person would have immediately noticed the parallels between these stories. You know, this, the disciples are out on a boat one evening when we're told they're suddenly swept by a great storm. And the waves are crashing on the boat. And the boat is on the verge of sinking as it fills with water. And just like Jonah, we find Jesus, what? He's fast asleep. And just like the sailors, we find the disciples waking Jesus up in desperation. And they ask this question. They say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus rises from his sleep and he rebukes the wind and the waves. And instantly, they become still. And the disciples are astonished. Does God care about those who are perishing? The answer in Jonah is yes, yes. And the answer in the Gospels is an even more resounding yes, yes, God cares. And on Calvary, we see exactly to what extent God will go to save those who are perishing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God's love for those that are perishing did not stop with Israel. It didn't even stop with Nineveh. It extends to the world and it was expressed most completely through the sacrifice of his son. Jonah would rather end his life than save sinners who are perishing. Jesus would rather give his life to save sinners who are perishing. 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is the heart of God. And with that same heart, God is calling us to love others, even our enemies, even those who hurt us and who seek our harm. He's calling us to love. But he's not calling us to love with our love. He's calling us to love with his love. And this may seem like an impossible task, but he's not asking us to do anything he has not done already. And this is what I mean when I say 
He's calling us to do it with His love. Again, when we look at the cross, in the midst of His enemies hurling insults at Him, we see Jesus saying what? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Only the same God who could look with great compassion upon the city of Nineveh and see a people who do not know their right hand from the left could say this on the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And this is where we find the power to love those who are impossible to love. We look to the cross. This is where we find the power to forgive those who have wronged us. We look to the cross. This is where we grow in God's heart for the lost and for this world. We look to the cross. It's impossible to love. It is impossible to forgive. It is impossible to share God's love when we are looking only at ourselves. But when we look to the cross... All things are possible. We can allow ourselves to get distracted by our petty little first world problems like Jonah, or we can open our eyes to the greatest problem in the world today. It's not school shootings. It's not gun control. It's not immigration. It's not poverty. The greatest problem in the world today is sin, and it has always been sin. And everything that we see that is broken is a result of that sin. And sin has separated us from a loving God. And that separation will continue for all of eternity for those who do not receive the grace that God offers through his son. And it's our job. And it's our mission as the church to tell the world You know, as I said earlier, the book of Jonah ends feeling, it feels a bit unresolved, right? Like, it doesn't even tell us, well, what happens to Jonah at the end of the day? What, what becomes of Jonah? And this is the only book that I'm aware of in the entire Bible that actually ends in the form of a question. But I think that's very appropriate, actually, because... I think the whole book is actually begging for a response. Now that we have seen the heart of God for Jonah and for all people, no matter how wicked, no matter how evil, will we fulfill the mission and calling that he has given to each of us? Um, As you all know, this Latest school shooting in Florida has been all over the news. It's incredibly sad. It's, it's tragic. And it's like deja vu. It's, and this time around, 17 people have died. 17. And what makes this latest school shooting even more disturbing to me is that really all these people did not have to die. And I'm not talking about because gun control laws weren't passed or because the FBI didn't act on tips that they were given, but for a more confounding reason. And this has come out more recently. I don't know if you're aware of this, but I want to read from you an excerpt from a CNN article about some of the events that happened on that day. 
says this, when Coral Springs police officers arrived at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, in the midst of the school shooting crisis, many officers were surprised to find out that not only that the armed school resource officer had not entered the building, but that three other Broward County Sheriff's deputies were also outside the school, and they had not entered. The deputies had their pistols drawn, and they just stood behind their vehicles. And the sources said not one of them had gone into the school. And they waited for Coral Spring officers to come in and to, to rush the building. And they waited for four minutes. The shooting lasted for six minutes. And for four minutes, these officers outside the building, they could hear the shots inside. They could hear the students screaming, and yet they still refused to go in. And when I found this out, it, it made me so angry. <laughs> like, what are these guys doing? They could have saved lives. This was their sworn duty. They were armed. They were equipped to, equipped to do just that. This was their job. And then suddenly I felt so convicted. You know, I think this is the picture of so many of us in the church, including me, so often. We're just standing by, standing down, while souls are lost with each passing day. We're not waiting for four minutes. We're waiting for sometimes an entire lifetime. And we do nothing while knowing that souls are perishing in our midst. God's mission to Jonah is God's mission for us. We have been shown great love. We have been shown great mercy, and we can come to church and we can praise God for this. But God is calling us, we who have received his love, to share this same love with the world. How can we stand by and do nothing? How can we allow ourselves to be so consumed with our own little problems that we can't see the greater need around us. In fact, the greatest need. God cared enough to do something about it. Do we care enough to do something as well? Let's bow our heads in prayer. You know, I think when we look at the book of Jonah, the short little story, really the only appropriate response is one of repentance. For those of us who are living in sin, who have rejected God, perhaps it is just simply the repentance that comes with recognizing our sin, our need for his grace and receiving that grace in the form of his son who has offered up his life on our behalf so that we can be restored so that a relationship that has been broken with a loving God can be restored. 
For those of us who have already prayed that prayer of repentance, who have already received by faith the gift that God has already extended by His great mercy because of His abounding love, Jonah is still a call to repentance. We can become so consumed with ourselves that we just refuse to see the need beyond our own needs. We refuse to let our hearts break for the things that break the heart of God. God. 